two passages in Jeremiah. Hopefully you heard some of the similarities between them. And then a very different kind of passage in James 1. And, and maybe you picked up on, especially that classic claim in James 1, verse 17, that there is no shadow of change or variation with God. God never changes. Um, you would have, you'd be forgiven if you would have thought opposite hearing those Jeremiah passages. Those Jeremiah passages, I'm sorry, that God often changes his mind, relents, regrets, repents of what he's going to do. And so one of our big themes today will be to think through how do we account for this affirmation throughout all of Scripture. We just heard one, but it's all over the place, that God does not change, that he's constant, that he's consistent, that he doesn't change his mind. And in many other passages, to say that he does change his mind, that he does alter his plans, that he does change directions and not do things that he's intending to do and do something else instead. Um, we're going to get into that in the next couple of minutes. Before we do, and I encourage you to keep Jeremiah 18 open, um, let me just say to a church as young as ours, um, Mother's Day might not feel as relevant because most of you are not mothers yet, um, but let me say happy Mother's Day anyway, and probably most of you, your moms are still around, please call her today, tell her you love her, um, and for those of us for whom our moms um, passed away in the past, for me, 19 years ago, I encourage you to remember your mom today, to give thanks to God for her um, in your life. I'm going to, today will not be much about Mother's Day, and I'm going to use an example of one of the great moms in church history a little later on. Um, but let's get into Jeremiah 18. Here is the way I want to jump into our topic today. I was thinking, thinking a lot in the last couple of weeks as I got ready for this one. What should the vocab word be? And some of you, if you're nerdy types who like to read theology, you might know this language that, that in Christian history, in church history, some of God's attributes are often described as his immutability, that he does not change his impassibility, that he doesn't suffer, that he doesn't develop, that he's not impacted by events the way we are. Um, and that one especially brings up a lot, of question, a lot of questions for Christians because God seems like he's often impacted by what happens in the world in scripture. Here's a very brief way I'll put that. Maybe I'll come back to this later. When suffering happens to us, I actually do think we should talk about God's suffering. I think God does suffer. I think certainly God experiences emotions in response to what we do. Positive emotions, negative emotions were made in God's image. Therefore, we experience emotions. Therefore, we're impacted by the world. But whether it's you yourself or whether it's someone you know or whether it's just from your awareness of this, when human beings suffer, when we experience trauma, one of two things always happens. Either, and most obviously, is we're impacted for the worse, and we become diminished versions of ourselves before the trauma happened, and we become people who are more unhealthy, we have coping mechanisms, we have um, a, a shorter fuse, we're less patient, we're less trusting towards other people, and many of us, when suffering and trauma happens, it, it, we're just left unchecked to our own intuitions in the years to come, we actually become not only different, but worse, diminished versions of ourselves. And if you've ever gone through suffering or trauma and you have actually um, processed it in community with other people in a healthy way, you probably know that you are now more empathetic than you used to be. You are now more humble than you used to be. You are now more able to love God and love other people than you used to be. And in either of those directions, we experience suffering differently than God does because God never diminishes and becomes a worse version of himself. And he never becomes a better version of himself. God doesn't learn through suffering how to be more empathetic than he used to be. And, and so there is this kind of tension for all scripture that in some ways God is like us in the way that he experiences events in the world. And in other ways, he is profoundly 
unlike us. And we heard both of those themes in the sermon. And so this might seem like a, a random way to start, but here's something I, I want to have us think about as we get into this theme. Because for me, it's, this, this theme that we're going to look at today has been so important for me to really learn to be a person of hope and not despair, to be open to the possibilities of the future that I can't really imagine yet because God is good, not because of our potential. As I've gotten older, I've, I've told some of you this over the years, as I've gotten older, I'm going to be 44 this summer. I'm a big reader. Helen sent me a meme, I think, yesterday saying, what you like to do in your free time and all six things on the meme where I like to read and I like to think about reading and I like to rearrange my books and I like to smell my books. And I was like, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of true. Uh, I am a big nerd. Um, so she said that, she's like, this made me think of you. And so because I read a lot and I'm a nerd, um, I realized as I get older that, that whenever anybody asks me for recommendations for like your favorite books, your favorite movies, whatever, that I kind of have to have two lists at this point. One is what I like to call the objective list, that if you would just ask me right now at 43 years old, what are the 10 best books objectively you've ever read? I would give you one set of answers. But then there's another kind of list, what I would call an autobiographical or a subjective list of which 10 books impacted you the most. And those two lists are not the same because there are books that impacted me very deeply that I would now actually either see as not all that good or even as problematic, but nonetheless autobiographically that really influenced me. So this is a bit random. This is a good example of the tension between these lists because this is one of the books that has impacted me the most in my life. I read it, I think in seventh or eighth grade. And I remember my hands shaking when I got to the final page and I finished it. And now I would say it's not a top 100 book I've ever read. And yet it impacted me. It's East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Now Steinbeck considered this his masterpiece, but almost all of the critics disagreed. All of the critics think that Grapes of Wrath is his masterpiece, but he wanted this to be his masterpiece. I would recommend you read this at some point. It's not as good as I thought it was in 7th or 8th grade, but it is still a good story. And it is basically a retelling of the Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel story. It's basically a family in the first half of the 20th century in the Salinas Valley in California, where almost all of Steinbeck's stories and characters are set. And it's basically about the, the cycles of brokenness that families play over and over and over again in the generations in the ways that not just individuals, but whole families, whole cultures get stuck in brokenness, in injustice, in sadness. And, and, and if you have ever in your own life been frustrated with feeling like you're just stuck, <laughs> If you've ever looked at what's going on politically or socially in our country and feel like, I'm just so frustrated how stuck we seem in these cycles. If you ever look at the greed and the environmental damage we do to the world around us and you just think it seems like we can't get out of these cycles, you're going to struggle with despair. You're going to struggle. Like, Did you notice that in Jeremiah 18, in the very last verse, after God says, if you do this, I'll change my mind. And if you do that, I'll also change my mind. They respond with the most idiotic response possible in chapter 18, verse 12. But the people of Israel say, that is in vain. We're just going to follow our own plans. Everyone will act according to the stubbornness of his heart. There's just a sense that we're stuck in cycles, and it doesn't really matter what we do. It's in vain what we do, for good or for bad. And this story, East of Eden, is all about that. I'm going to come back to that story at the very end and tell you a little about it. But like Cain and Abel, if you remember anything about Cain and Abel, the first story of murder, the first story of human beings getting stuck in Genesis 3 through 11, and then... Basically, from Genesis 12, Abraham to the end of the Old Testament, that's the story of Israel, 
stupid, 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 disobedient, disobedient, judgment, 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 stuff. Just the whole Old Testament is one cycle over and over and over again of human brokenness, judgment, injustice. And then you just think about human history overall. And Ecclesiastes says nothing is new under the sun. We just play over and over and over again these cycles time and time again. Here is something in scripture about the heart of God that gives me hope in the midst of cycles of stupidity, being stuck in my own life, in the world. Here is, I think, the ultimate reason to be, I don't know if optimistic is the right word, but I would at least say hopeful rather than cynical and despairing. I'm going to use just this word faithful to describe this aspect of God, that he's constant, that he's reliable, that he's consistent, that he's trustworthy. And yet the most surprising thing, I think, about this affirmation that God does not change, that God does not develop, that God does not become a better or a worse version of himself, that God is faithful and constant, is that one of the most obvious manifestations of God's unchangeable nature is how often he changes his mind, which is very counterintuitive. So let me just encourage you to think about whether in your own life or somebody else's life, somebody who never changes their mind about anything is almost certainly fickle, unreliable, and someone who does not have steady character. Someone who is unchangeable, someone who is faithful, someone who is constant is much more likely to surprise you to be open in a flexible way to the course, the fluctuating course of events. Throughout scripture, it is because God is unchanging that he so often changes his mind. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Actually, let's, for the sake of time, let's just look at one main one. Turn back to 1 Samuel 15. If I had more time, and if you want, um, come up to me afterwards, show me an email. I would love to give you more material on this. I could read you a hundred passages that affirm that God does not change his mind, that God is constant, that God is unchangeable, and that when he sets his mind to something, he does it, no one can prevent it from happening. And I could show you a hundred passages that seem to say the opposite. And I want to show you that this is not because the Bible is an ancient, primitive, stupid book that constantly contradicts itself. It's because it's provoking you to think about something that is um, complicated, that is nuanced and yet important. First Samuel 15, which is right after Ruth and Judges, but if you get the first or second Kings or first or second Chronicles, you've gone too far. It's the first half of the Old Testament. First Samuel 15 is the story of Saul, the first king of Israel, being removed by God from the assignment to be king of Israel. David's on the scene yet, but he won't actually become king for many years. And God sent, because Saul has been disobedient, he's been arrogant, he has not been a wise and a good king, God sends the prophet Samuel to tell Saul, you're not going to be king anymore. And I want you to notice this. In verse 10 of 1 Samuel 15, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and this is God speaking, I regret, I relent, same word that's used in Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 26, I repent, I change my mind. All good translations of this word from having made Saul king because Saul, since I installed him as king, he has turned back. He has changed his mind about following me and has not performed my commandments. If you were listening to Jeremiah 18, this is Jeremiah 18 playing out. If I say blessing for you, but then you turn away from that to evil, I will change my mind about the blessing. If I say you're under judgment, but you repent and you turn away from sin back to me, I will change my mind about judgment. This is that theme playing out. Now, right here, this word first shows up. Some of you will remember this at the very beginning of the Old Testament story. Cain and Abel, 
There's murder. There, there's all of this bad stuff going on in Genesis 4 and 5. And Genesis 6, the beginning of the Noah's flood story. Does anybody remember how the story of Noah's flood starts? Chapter 6, verse 7, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. The same word. The Lord regretted that he made Saul king. The Lord changed his mind in Genesis 6 about human beings. He says, you know what? I'm going to wipe these guys out. I'm sorry. I, I regret that I made these guys. It makes God seem fickle. It, like, did God not see this coming? Was, was God not wise enough to know that this would happen? Is he just, you know, um, somebody who was unstable mentally? Why did he do this? And yet, keep reading in 1 Samuel 15. And this is a classic example of this. Verse 28. Actually, let's go to verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Saul is not happy that he's being removed as king, that God has changed his mind. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, clearly an allusion to David. And also know this, Saul, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a human being that he should have regret. Change his mind. Repent be sorry if something's done. That is the definition of a contradiction. Verse 11 says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Verse 29 says, I am not a human being that I should lie or have regret. Then, just to make sure that we're not mishearing this, the chapter ends, verse 34 and 35. Then Samuel went off to Ramah. Saul went up to his house of Gibeah of Saul. He's still king for a while. He just knows that he's on his way out. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We are forced there to confront something that doesn't seem to make sense. In some sense, God seems to change his mind, to regret, to relent, to, to veer off course. And yet, at the same time we're told that, we're also told, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't think that I do that, at least as a human being does. So here is something really important to know about the entire Bible and really about God in general. One of the things that it means that we are created in the image of God is not to say this is a, a wrong deduction, but it's, it's understandable, but it's disastrous. It's not to say that you know God by looking inside of your own experience and saying, well, God must be like that. But nonetheless, it does mean that everything you can think about God is analogical. It is based on your own experience. When we say God is merciful, you cannot approach that in an abstract conceptual way. You have images in your mind of what mercy means from interactions with human beings in history, and we're being told God's kind of like that. But here on the one hand, it's saying that because we are in the image of God, that God is often described anthropomorphically is the fancy word in scripture. Often God is described as having a strong right hand. Just so you know, God doesn't actually have a body. God is often described as changing his mind like human beings do. And then we're immediately told that he doesn't change his mind like we do. And so on the one hand, it's affirming that to know God, you have to know something about human beings. And here you have to know that human beings often change their minds. Human beings often regret the things that they decided to do earlier. And there's something about that that we have in common with God. On the other hand, you also have to know because we are finite and God is not, because we are foolish and God is not, because we are both creatures and corrupt, there will often be profound discontinuities between our experience 
in God's experience. So the last time you changed your mind, why did you change your mind about something? And most likely it was for one of these reasons. You didn't have enough wisdom and foresight to guess ahead of time what was coming. You had wrong motivations when you embarked upon this path and the consequences are really stacked up, the whole seeping, uh, sowing and reaping thing. Like that gets really unfun. And so you change your mind. God changes his mind too, but not for lack of foresight, not because his motives were in the wrong place, not because he couldn't see what was coming, not because somebody else imposes a stronger sense of agency on him, but for some other reason. And so let's go to Jeremiah 18. This, I think, is the great... Actually, you know what? Let's go to Jeremiah 26, the, the specific story that Ajunwa read for us. This summer, I'll mention this in the announcements later, and more will be coming out on this in the weeks to come. I'm hoping that this summer we'll do a Wednesday night Bible study for maybe five or six weeks, for those of you who are around, on the minor prophets. And we'll look at the theme of prophecy. And prophecy is very misunderstood. Sometimes people think it's like predicting the future. Sometimes people think it's like, you know, being involved in denouncing social injustice. Not really either of those things per se, although it connects to both of them. But prophecy is obviously all over scripture. And in Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah comes into the throne room of Jerusalem where the king and the prophets and the priests are and all the people eventually hear of it. And he says, because of this king, at the very beginning of chapter 6, we're told, King Jehoiakim, he is a wicked king. He has been disobeying God and treating his neighbors with injustice and his subjects with injustice for a long time. And Jeremiah comes and gives a prophecy that God is going to remove you from being king and he's going to destroy this city unless you change your mind. And the immediate reaction of the king and of the priests and of the leaders and the prophets is to want to kill Jeremiah because they're fickle and they don't want to change their mind about what they're doing. And yet somebody points out, starting in verse 16, that there's a counter word. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man actually doesn't deserve the sentence of death. Why? Because he spoke to us in the name of the Lord our God. And then certain of the elders of the land, the old gods, the ones who have a longer memory, they pull out a memory of something a long time ago that a guy named Micah of Moresheth, and this is the Micah who's, there's a book of the Bible in his name, a guy named Micah, a couple of generations ago, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah. I'm going to um, not have time to get into this a whole lot, but if you don't remember Hezekiah, I would encourage you this week to go back to Isaiah 36 and 39 and reread the story of Hezekiah, who changed God's mind about what God was going to do. And he remembers this prophecy of Micah, and then he quotes it. And this verse actually shows up in Micah chapter 3. We'll turn there in a second. Zion will be plowed as a field. That's another word for Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins in the mountain of the house of wooded height. Keep your finger there and jump ahead a couple of books. After Ezekiel, after Daniel, you'll see that Hosea is the first minor prophet, and you just go few more. You go past Joel, you go past Amos and Abediah, Jonah, and then there's Micah. On my uh, ESV Bible that we have in the pews, it's page 777. Micah chapter 3 is a prophecy of judgment upon the people of God, and just in case this seems random, this is my favorite prophecy in the Bible. And it's my favorite prophecy in the Bible because it didn't come true. 
There is a prophecy in the Bible that is written here, and it's falsified because it didn't come true. You might think, this is the kind of stuff atheists pull out on the internet to show that Christianity isn't true, and that's because atheists, as much as Christians, tend to misunderstand prophecy. That's not really what it's about. So in chapter 3, starting in verse 9, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads, its leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. It's a picture of corruption across the board. Yet, even as they're corrupt and, and unjust, they lean on the Lord and they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. And this shall sound familiar because it's quoted line for line in Jeremiah 26. Therefore, because of you, corrupt leaders, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now, this might sound really boring to you. Turn back to Jeremiah 26. It is important to know when Jeremiah lived. Jeremiah lived 200 years before Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. If you have some vague sense of Old Testament history, you read Micah 3 and you're like, yeah, Jerusalem did get destroyed. But not in that generation, not in that moment, which is what that prophecy is about. And if you go back to Jeremiah 26, you can see that this is actually brought up 50, 75 years later in Jeremiah's day as an example of a prophet came in and said the city is going to be destroyed, but the people repented. The king repented. And it didn't happen. And then in verse 19, didn't Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear? Did they? No, they did not. Did he not fear the Lord and treat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent, repent, change his mind of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? And yet here we are, 70 years later, about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. That the point of prophecy is not to show that God knows ahead of time that it's going to happen. It's to prompt people to change their minds. It's to prompt people to turn away from their sin so that, and here's another great prophecy that never came true. Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them that it will be destroyed in 40 days. And it was not. And Jonah didn't even give them an opportunity. But Jonah walked in and said, by the way, guys, this whole place is coming down in 40 days, drops the mic, walks out of the city because he hates the Ninevites. And yet they repent. And the same word, God changed his mind. God relented of the disaster that is there. Hezekiah is the king in Isaiah 36 to 39. So, you know, he takes place. He, he's king when this prophecy about Jerusalem and Micah is there, and his own story on an individual level is a parable in Isaiah of the whole country story, and here's what you need to know about Hezekiah, is he's basically a faithful king, unlike most of the other kings in Israel's history, and yet tragically, he's so frustrated when this happens, he's so bitter in his soul when it happens, is he gets a chronic illness, and he's on his deathbed, probably when he's my age, and a prophet comes and says, Hezekiah, get your house in order. The Lord has announced that your life is over. And Hezekiah, in great grief, turns to the Lord and says, Lord, do not take me away from the land of the living. I want to keep serving you. And God changes his mind and adds 15 more years to his life. 
there is a really wrong reading of that story that is kind of like a, not, not a boy who cried wolf story, but it's a be careful what you ask for story because the last part of the story implies that Hezekiah kind of ends on a negative note. And so sometimes that story is seen as, hey, don't ask for a longer life. He might ruin your life in the years that are added. That's not the point of the story. The only point of the story is Hezekiah is not the Messiah, but that's seen as a parable of just as Jerusalem was prophesied in the ninth century that it would be destroyed, Jerusalem got 150 years more life because the king turned back to God and the people turned back in repentance. I could give you so many examples of this in scripture where God says something is going to happen and then he changes his mind. Let's go back to Jeremiah 18. This is the passage that actually explains why God dozens of times in scripture changes his mind and yet is unchangeable. As you turn there, I'll mention one other one. It's another favorite one of mine. There is a king later in Jeremiah named Coniah, who is also wicked. This is the kind of stuff where like all these things are hard to remember who they are. You just know that most of them suck and most of them do. And Coniah is a terrible king. And God says, not only am I done with you, I am done with your descendants. And I'm going to remove you like I remove a signet. And, and the story just ends there that none of your descendants will ever rule. None of your descendants ever will sit on the throne of David. And yet there is a guy who shows up later. And you don't need to turn here. But at the very, very end of the Old Testament story, you might be like, oh, these are really random examples. Nick. But this one, this one's important. I mean, they're all important. But this one in particular, a guy shows up at the end of the Old Testament with Haggai named Sarah Babel. Sarah Babel becomes the ruler of Israel, and here are two things you need to know about it. One is that he is the descendant of Coniah, and when God makes him ruler, God describes it as, I'm putting a signet ring on Zerubbabel, and here's the more important thing. Zerubbabel is in the genealogy of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. God changed his mind about Coniah, and the judgment that was there, because Sarah Babel turned back and God gave him another chance. And Sarah Babel became an ancestor of Jesus in the line that leads to the Messiah. Um, this is one that, that I've been thinking about a lot. About five or six months ago, Galt and Arturo, who are both out of town right now, we got together for a night and I was shocked as, as an older guy that neither of them had ever seen the original Rocky, the Sylvester Stallone. So it's like, okay, so we're definitely watching Rocky. And so we get together and we watch Rocky. And it had been 20 years since I had seen this movie, the original Rocky. If you've ever seen any of the Rockies, all the later ones are terrible. This first one is amazing. The first one is a totally different kind of movie. And I had forgotten, I don't think I was a Christian the last time I had seen this movie, that there is a scene where if you know anything about the story, Rocky's this underdog and he gets randomly chosen to have a chance against the, the heavyweight champion of the world. And there's this trainer named Mick, who's just this pathetic character. He's ignored Rocky his whole life. And he just wants Rocky to give him a chance to be a trainer. And then Mick is just this kind of moron who, who doesn't, he's just a street guy. He's got street wisdom, but no other kind of wisdom. And there is this hilarious line where Mick is just riffing to Rocky about why he should give him a chance to train him. And Mickey says this, hey, Rocky, I'm here to warn you. You got to be very careful about this shot at the title you got, because like the Bible says, you ain't going to get a second chance. And it's one of the great lines, because if there is a <laughs> statement that more directly contradicts the entire thrust of scripture, I can't imagine a better one than that. Be careful, because like the Bible says, you're not going to get a second chance. 
the whole thrust of scripture is that God loves to give second chances and he loves to give third chances and he loves to give what to put it this way that God not only changes his mind he loves to change his mind he loves to change his mind and so in Jeremiah 18 we are not just told of a story of God changing his mind but of why this is true and how it works so Joseph read this at the beginning Jeremiah 18 this is one of the main places that scripture gets the imagery of what is it like for a creature to be created by God, to be related to him. It's like a potter in clay. Now, this can often be used wrongly as an analogy of God can do whatever he wants with you. If he wants to make junk and then destroy it, he can do that. If he wants to do this, even though you don't deserve it, he can do that. But that's not really the point of the analogy. The point of the analogy is that God is free to go in different directions than he earlier declared he would. And so, in verse 4, the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel. In the analogy, he changed his mind about what he was going to do with this clay vessel that had been ruined, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, two examples, and they are both if-then statements. Follow the logic of these. On the one hand, if at any time I declare concerning any nation or any kingdom in the world that I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it, judgment. Here's the end of the story for this sinful people. And if that nation then, concerning which I've spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent, repent, regret, change my mind of the disaster that I had previously intended to do and even publicly committed myself to through my prophets. On the other hand, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it up, that I will plant it, that it will receive blessing, and if it then turns to do evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent, relent, regret, change my mind of the good that I had formerly intended and publicly committed myself to do to it. Now, therefore, conclusion, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm shaping disaster against you in devising a plan against you. So you fit in the first category. What's the point? Not like, oh man, we're ruined, it's over. The whole point is return. You change your minds, every one of you through your evil ways, and amend your ways and deeds. Here is one of the great themes in scripture that should get rid of any sense of despair, any sense of it doesn't matter what I do, what we do, because what's the response in verse 12? And yet they say that's in vain. It doesn't matter what we do. God's just going to do whatever he's going to do. It's in vain. Might as well just keep doing evil. Might as well just keep on the path that we are. It doesn't matter what we do. We're just stuck in these cycles. The whole point of this theme is that we are not destined to replay the cycles that we're in right now. We are not destined to just replay the brokenness of our family histories. We're not fated to just stay stuck in the sins that we're in now, nor are we encouraged to think just because we're doing well now, it doesn't matter what I do later on. Because look, I already prayed this prayer to become a Christian. I already like believe the right things. It doesn't matter what I do later on. 
There is a story that Jesus tells much later on. It is a very simple story, and it is almost certainly him riffing on Jeremiah 18. A father had two sons, and he told both of them to go out into the field and work. The first son worked the first half of the day and then changed his mind and went home and began to disobey his father's will. The other son started off by disobeying for the first half of the day, but then changed his mind and went back into the field and work. So if you're only thinking strict logic here, they're both 50% disobedient and 50% obedient in time. And Jesus asked the question, which one did the will of his father? The one who changed his mind from disobedience to obedience not the one who changed his mind from obedience to disobedience. It does not matter what is in the past. It matters what we do in response to God's word right here, right now. And so if this seems confusing at all, let me try to clarify what I think is going on here. Here are two things that you can count on when it comes to God. Then I want to say a couple of things we can't count on. Here are two things that we can count on about God. Two things you have to know are unchangeably true about God. The first one is this, that God has a permanent preference for mercy over judgment, for life over death, for restoration over ruin. Every single situation, God is not evenly disposed, like, eh, whatever. He is permanently preferring life rather than death mercy rather than justice. That is really good news. On the other hand, and this is also good news, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way all the time. God is permanently committed to not tolerating evil and injustice and to not sweeping under the rug. And he will not show mercy in spite of the fact that we are treating our neighbors unjustly and profaning his name. And if you feel like, oh man, that's there's tension there. Like, like there's, there's a like, like there's a, not a contradiction there. You're going to get stuck there. This is why, this is the ultimate explanation of why the story climaxes in the death of Jesus. What is the cross except on the one hand, the ultimate insistence that God desires mercy over justice. And yet on the other hand, the ultimate insistence that he will not sweep sin under the rug. He will not tolerate injustice. You can count on these two things that in every moment of your life, which is good, also every moment of the people you hate in your enemies' lives, the people you can't stand in the world, that God is permanently committed to wanting them to live and not die, to turn back to him and experience life and peace and restoration, not ruin. And yet both in your life and your friends' lives and your enemies' lives, that he is not interested in tolerating our in our sin, in our injustice. And if you say, well, that seems to put God in a tough position in the universe, maybe you can begin to empathize with why his heart is so constantly torn apart by us. Because if he permanently prefers our welfare and not our disaster, and he is permanently not willing to tolerate our evil, that puts him in a very difficult place emotionally. in relation. You can understand why God would constantly be described by the prophets as his heart being torn in two different directions. That on the one hand, there is an asymmetry of purpose and desire. In Ezekiel 18, I do not desire the death of the wicked. I desire rather that they turn and live. First Timothy 2, he desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3, he desires everyone to come to repentance and to not perish. In Isaiah 28, there is this great phrase that God is finally, after a long time of being patient, 
going to rise up in judgment against his own people. And the prophet Isaiah says he is rising up to do his alien work, his strange work. Lamentations 3, which I read at the beginning of the service, even when God brings judgment, his heart is not in it. When God brings mercy, his heart is fully in it. When he brings judgment, he does it reluctantly. He does it in spite of the fact that it's not what he wants to do. Um, that the God is permanently committed to goodness, to, to mercy, to restoration, and yet will not tolerate injustice, will not tolerate evil. And so he often sends prophets to say, turn back to me, and I will turn back to you. Change your mind about injustice, and I will change my mind about judgment. But also to those who are currently doing the right thing, if you would turn away from justice towards your neighbor, towards love towards me, towards honoring my commandments, towards injustice, I will also change my mind about you. The one thing you can never do is say, it doesn't matter what I do. It's in vain what I do. It's in vain what we do. This one might seem random, but man, do I love the lyrics. Some of you might know this, uh, this singer, great African-American female singer, very soulful voice, Tracy Chapman, fast car. I grew up in the 80s and 90s with Tracy Chapman, and she's got this great song. And it's a love song called Give Me One Reason. And it's a song that is filled with disappointment about her lover, who is just doing all the wrong things, and yet her genuine love for him. And I want you to hear this, not as a woman saying this to a man she loves, but God to his creatures. Give me one reason to stay here, and I'll turn right back around. Give me one reason to stay here, and I'll turn right back around. I said that I don't want to leave you lonely, but you've got to make me change my mind. And in the last line of the song, the last stanza, baby, just give me one reason. Oh, give me just re one reason why I should stay. I said I told you that I love you, and there isn't anything more to say. And I want to say to you about the heart of God, just give him one reason to stay. Just give him one reason to turn back, and he will. You have to give him a reason to turn back. You cannot say it doesn't matter what I do. And, and so here are a couple of things that flow out of this. On the one hand, I would say this. Maybe your ambition, by God's grace, to be really good at repentance, to be really good at changing your mind. If I learn about someone that they have not changed their mind about anything, a friendship, a relationship, an ideology, a political conviction, a strategy of engaging the world for the last 20 years, I immediately know that they are fickle and not to be trusted. People who never change their mind are people who are not faithful and constant in their character. The people who change their mind, not all of them, because you can also change your mind for bad reasons, but people who are open to changing their mind are people who are rooted in convictions and values that are unchanging. And so change your mind on a regular basis, both so that God would turn back to you when you're going the wrong direction in your foolishness, your faithfulness, but also because we imitate our creator when we change our minds. We imitate our creator when we don't give up on people, when we don't turn away from people, when we turn back to them. And so here's a couple of practical things. On the one hand, and I would just encourage each of you, you know yourself well enough to know which of these do you tend to lean into a little more. On the one hand, do not despair. 
If you are tempted about anything in your life to say, I'm just stuck in the cycle, it's never going to get better. If you are tempted to look at anything going on politically, socially, economically, not nationally, internationally, and say, we're screwed, I would say, do not fall into that pattern. God is open to new possibilities in the future, depending on whether we turn back and do not despair. Like in Lamentations 3, know that even when judgment is coming, it does not reflect the heart of God the way that mercy does. At the very beginning of the bulletin, there is a great line from John Donne, who is more famous as a poet, but he was also a pastor for the last decade or so of his life, and he preached a bunch of sermons. And, and by the way, this is a I think this thing that we're looking at today is the deepest motivation you can ever have for why you should be praying, why you should be asking God to do things. John Dunn says this, the words of a faithful man or woman are a cannon against God himself, and they batter down all his severe and heavy purposes for judgment. That is a really provocative line. God is intending to bring judgment, Moses stands up and says, Lord, don't bring judgment on Israel. God is bringing judgment on Nineveh, and Jonah comes and says, Nineveh, God is bringing judgment, and it changes God's mind. So our prayers can actually change God's mind. And yet, Dunn says, this comes not, God knows, out of the weight or force of our words, but out of the easiness of God, because he wants to change his mind. He wants to turn back in mercy. He doesn't want judgment to have the last word. And so do not despair. And then if you are not there, if that's not, if despair is not your challenge, it's not your, your temptation, I would also say do not be presumptuous. Do not presume that God will not come in judgment. Do not presume that consequences are not connected to our actions. Do not presume that evil and injustice in your life will be tolerated. Um, and, and by the way, this is one of the few things that you cannot know about God. How long do you have between embarking upon a path of injustice and God bringing judgment? I have no idea. I can tell you this, that Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And Psalm 32 says, turn back to him while he is still close, because in a fl flood of great waters, you will not reach him. Time does run out at some point. You cannot presume that because God always desires mercy, nothing bad can really happen. No tragedy can actually happen. That is not true. And so last kind of so what? And, and by the way, this is why I'm, one of my heroes, Leslie Newbigin, this British missionary who was in India for the first half of his adult life and then came back and wrote some of the most important books about God I've ever read. Somebody asked Leslie Newbigin when he was about 80 years old. Are you a pessimist or an optimist? Are you a pessimist or an optimist? Which that's a great question. How do you answer that? And here was his response. I believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Which means that profound punishment and profound hope are both part of the human story. I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Which means that Jesus was crucified because of our injustice. And yet he was raised from the dead. Do not despair. And do not presume. And then this very much flows out of it. But I would say, towards yourself or towards other people, stay away from cheap grace and stay away from cruel justice. Some of you are very inclined to cheap grace for yourself or your friends. 
some of you are very inclined towards cruel justice towards your enemies. And I would encourage you to repent of both of those attitudes. One of the things cheap grace and cruel justice will allow you to avoid, here's two things both of those postures will allow you to avoid, having to be patient with people and having to grieve in sadness, the brokenness of the world. James Baldwin, one of the great African-American civil rights leaders in the 60s and in the 50s, said this in his great book, The Fire Next Time. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hatred so stubbornly is because they sense that once the hatred is gone, they will be forced to deal with the pain and the sadness underneath. And I would say, if you lean towards cheap grace, or if you lean towards cruel justice, what you are giving yourself pardon and effort to do is to grieve and to be sad about the brokenness of other people and your own brokenness. I would say one of the most consistent ways God is portrayed in the story is as sad and as grieved over our injustice and over our evil. Because he loves us, and yet he will not tolerate our evil. It's a do not doubt the heart of God. Pray. Here's my, uh, here's my Mother's Day story, and it really does connect to this. I was just reading this last night. I was not planning to put it in. One of the great moms in church history is Augustine's mom, Monica. And as Augustine tells the story as an old man, and the whole story is him remembering his life, but now from the vantage point of what was God actually up to in all of these years and all of these decades that I was running from him. And he remembers a story of his mom having a dream and then pursuing him. He remembers that his mom was praying for him all the time. And when Augustine narrates his conversion, why did I become a Christian? How is it that God didn't give up on me? He remembers his mom. And here's what he says. You, O Lord, sent forth your hand from on high, and you rescued my soul from this foggy abyss. Because my mother, your faithful one, wept over me in your presence day and night more than other mothers weep over the bodies of their children who have died. For through the faith and the spirit that she had received from you, she saw that I was on the road to dying, and you hearkened to her prayers, O Lord. You hearkened to her prayer, and you did not scorn her tears. In every place in which she prayed, she watered the earth beneath her eyes, and you listened to her, O Lord, and you saved me. There's a mom who changed God's mind. And the most important figure in church history was a Christian, because her mom would not stop crying and trying to change God's mind. And so on this theme, I would encourage you, whatever your instinct is, to lean towards despair, to lean towards presumption, to lean towards cheap grace, to lean towards cold justice, See the heart of God in these two things you can count on. He will not tolerate or overlook evil forever, but he permanently prefers mercy. Those are two of the most unchangeable aspects of God's character. And because of that, he is so prone to change his mind. He changes his mind all the time. He's changed his mind about every single one of you at some point. He will change his mind in the future if you turn back to him. He will change his mind if you turn away from him. Turn towards him in grace because he is faithful what you never need to do is wonder if i turn back to god what will i find what heart will what attitude will meet me you do not need to wonder about that because in our word today and we're going to sing it here in a second that you know that god is faithful you know that god is good you know that he constantly bears this character and so therefore we can count on that 
and ultimately turn back to him. And so what I want to do, I'm going to pray here in a second. We are going to, as we do the Lord's Supper, because this is such an obvious thing to do, I didn't want us to do a confession of sin before the sermon today. So as we pass out the elements, we're going to do two things we usually don't do. I'm going to give you two to three minutes to just confess your sins privately as you hold the elements. And I would say in whatever areas you need to change your mind about, do it knowing that God has said, if you change your mind, I will change my mind. And then we're going to actually sing Great is Thy Faithfulness to celebrate God's grace. So let me pray, and then we'll go into the Lord's table.